This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. And we'll just read a few verses and then just focus on one of the points. Matthew 16, reading from verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And upon this rock, I will build my church. While Jesus was on earth, it was rare for him to speak of anything that was his own. He claimed no home of his own. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Whenever he was born, he was laid in a borrowed manger. And when he died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. And it would seem that the only two things that he claimed as his own is what we read there in those few verses. My father and my church... His father and his church, the two things that were the most dearest to the Son of God, that's what he claimed to be his own. He didn't say a church or even the church, but my church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In his great prayer for his church in John 17, He says seven times, those whom you have given me. And so the church is the Father's gift to him, given to him by the Father. Those whom you have given me. In John 6, 37, and all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will not cast out. John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. But here's the paradox. There's lots of paradoxes in the Bible, and this is one of them. Even though the church was the Father's gift to him, yet it was not received without an incredible price to be paid. This gift cost Jesus everything. Peter said, we were bought with a price, and yet it is a gift from the Father. 
Who can understand that paradox? But yet we receive that. And it was as if the father said to the son, son, I have a gift to give you. Look at the world, the world that I love. Out of that world, I'm going to give you multitudes of men and women and boys and girls who will love you, who will call you Savior and Lord. I will give them to you as a gift. But here is the paradox. My gift will not come cheap. You will have to pay with everything that you've got. You will have to purchase them even with your own blood. You will have to give your own life to receive this gift of mine. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So, again, here's the paradox. So, while we are the Father's gift to his Son, yet we are his purchased possession. So two things we can be sure of this morning. We are his church and his church will not fail. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. A congregation may fail. A pastor or minister or elder or evangelist may fail. But his church in its entirety around the world will not fail. I will build my church. Why will it not fail? How can it not fail? Because it is his body, first of all. We are his body on earth. We are his body manifested on earth. He reveals himself through us to the world. He dwells in us. He demonstrates his will through us. He works through us. He ministers through us. We are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. This is this mystical union between Christ and us. He's the head. We are the body. So we are an integral part of Christ, mystically, supernaturally. We are his body on earth. If the world wants to know who Christ is, the only way they're going to know is through us. At this moment, he's not coming back to manifest himself to this world. One day he will, but until then, we are the manifestation of his body on this earth. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. 1 Corinthians 12, 20. There are many members Yet, just one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. And so the church will not fail because it is his body. And his body cannot fail. <laughs> that may seem rather obvious, but we need to know that it cannot and will not fail. And Christ is building his church even as we speak right now. Secondly, it cannot fail, not just because it is his body, but because we are his bride. You are his 
bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul links the body of Christ to the bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, if I might read from verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are all members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects uh, her husband. And so we are his bride. And at this very moment, the bride is being prepared for the bridegroom. And he's the bridegroom. And he won't be left standing at the altar and he won't be jilted. <laughs> the two shall become one. Whenever Jesus talked about the bride being prepared, and when Paul says about the bride, he says that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Spot here means stain or moral blemish. The Lord is looking at his church to be pure and holy. Wrinkle here is only found once here. And it means washed and ironed. <laughs> washed and ironed. Not just clean, but pure and upright and straight. That's the type of bride that Christ is coming for. Without blemish here, this word when used in speaking of the Old Testament, was used when speaking of the Old Testament sacrifice, it was to be without blemish. The lamb that was chosen was to be without blemish. It was discarded, rejected if it was blemished. And so both morally and religiously, spiritually, and every way, Christ is coming back for a church that is without blemish, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Jude 24 talks about us being presented faultless before the Father's throne. And so there's a high standard. What bridegroom would not want a high standard of his bride? Christ is exactly the same. And so he's building his church, he's preparing his church. And so it will not fail because we are his body and because we are his bride, and thirdly, because we are his building. <laughs> I will build my church. His church is not built with masonry, but men. Not with wood, but with woman. 
It's a living thing. Peter calls us living stones built up to a most holy temple. I was watching a, a nature program recently and, and part of it, it was talking about soldier ants and how that they build their, their ant hill, which is massive. In order to do that, which is some height, very large and high, but in order to do that, in order to get up to the top, in order to build that thing, guess what they do? They stand on each other. They literally build a living wall of ants in order to do this. And it showed you up close how they were clinging to each other and standing upon each other. And it was a living, moving wall that they were building. And Peter said that you and I are living stones, not dead stones, but living stones. It's a supernatural church. It's a mystical church. It's not bricks and mortar. It's something that's alive, that's real, that's organic, that's spiritual. I will build my church. Our foundation is sure. The Bible says we're built upon the apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Now therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So there's lots of metaphors for the church. We are his body, we are his bride, we are his building. And I love what Warren Wearsby says, and I've used this very often in wedding ceremonies, because we are his body, we have a living relationship. A living relationship. Clifford mentioned earlier how that Christ and of all the millions, the untold millions around the world, and yet each one of us can get his personal undivided attention at any moment of the day. It's a living relationship. Our, our, our relationships with our husbands and wives are living relationships. Uh, we, we talk to one another. We meet with one another. We be with one another. He says, because we are his bride, we have a loving relationship. A loving relationship. That's what Christ wants that we love him and we know that he loves us. He loves us before we ever loved him. And because we are building, we have a lasting relationship. He's building this to last. This old building we're meeting in today is roughly 210 years old. And it's probably good for at least another couple of hundred years. But it's nothing in comparison to what Christ is building. Hallelujah. It will last for all eternity. It will never fail. It will never fall. Because he's building it. It's a lasting relationship. So we're in this for the long haul. <laughs> We've signed up for the duration. 
We're not thinking of getting out. <laughs> we're thinking of going forward and going upward and going onward. That's what we're doing. And the other reason why it will not fail his church is because we are his bond. His bond is his word. He has given his word. That's his bond. I will build my church. That's a promise and it's a fact. Satan has tried to destroy this church of Christ. Since the moment it was born, from that very moment he tried to destroy it. But he's never succeeded and he never will succeed. Rome could not crush it. All the might and power of Rome that came against the little church could not crush it. In fact, the church split the whole Roman Empire right down the middle. China cannot crush the church, even though it has tried for so long. The USSR could not crush the church. They banned it, they persecuted it, they imprisoned it, but they could not crush it. Russia today cannot crush the church. Communism cannot crush it. Atheism cannot crush it. Islam will not crush the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Actually, the greatest threat to the church is not from the outside, but from the inside. What, can it, what Satan cannot do from the outside, he will try from the inside. The early church faced this problem with false prophets and false teachers and legalists and liberals and Gnostics and so forth. It's a constant battle. As you read through Paul's letters and John's letter and Jude and Peter, you will see it again and again and again. Warning and warning and warning. And Paul one time says, when I leave you, he says, grievous wolves will come. So it's always been a challenge, particularly from the inside. Now, Paul talked about those who would preach doctrines of demons. And he said it would spread like a cancer within the body of Christ. Jude talked about those who have gone the way of Cain, who have run greedily after the, after the error of Balaam for profit. And so that's a big challenge today. But still, with all of the falseness and all of the deception, all of that, the church will not fail. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's God's word. That's Christ's bond. And he will keep his word, won't he? Amen. And it will not fail because of his blood. Jesus paid the ultimate price. He made the greatest investment that could be made in the lives of his church. He paid the dearest price for you and for me. So he's not going to let his church feel. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Do you seriously think that having done all of that, he's going to let his church feel? I don't think so. He has paid too much of a price. 
What is the role of the church in society today? Apart from winning souls to Christ, how does the church affect society? How does the church be salt and light in a corrupt and dark world? Thank God for the church with all of its faults, with all of its failings, with all of the times it was in high place and all of the times it was in low place, all of the time it came through the dark ages and all the rest of it and all that it's had to overcome to get to this place. Thank God for the church this past 2,000 years. In fact, I just noticed last night there's a program coming on television to say how much Christianity has impacted the world. It's been a game changer, they said. And it is. And Christ has been a game changer. And the church has been a game changer. So many things have changed because of Christ's church on the earth. Do you know that the church is the largest single provider of health care and education in the world? Especially in the poorest countries where there's no care available? Who's going in there and doing that? It's the church. It's the church that does it. And when you add the schools and the hospitals that the church has raised up and has been the, been the instigation of raising up, then there's no close second provider. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights 1948, the UN put forward the Declaration of Human Rights. These rights were so clearly based on Christian principles that some Muslim states objected and refused to sign on the basis because it conflicted with Sharia law. Karl Marx also acknowledged and rejected human rights as a product of Christianity. Atheist Jürgen Habermas stated, the individual morality of conscience and human rights and democracy is a direct legacy of Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. The church has changed so much in the world to make it livable and habitable. If you take the church out of this world this past 2,000 years, I don't think we'd have made it this far. Churches were the first orphanages. In the high Middle Ages, abandoning unwanted children finally eclipsed infanticide. Unwanted children were left at the door of a church or an abbey, and the clergy was assumed to take care of their upbringing. And this practice saw the birth of the first orphanages. So every orphanage around the world today came out of Christianity. If there was no Christianity, there would be no orphanages. That's the truth of it. That's the reality. Dr. Bernardo is the most famous one of all. George Mueller was a wonderful believer who had great faith and raised up great orphanages. And there are countless others around the world today. All of them find their genesis in the church. Care for the elderly and disabled in society. Where did that come from? Christians birthed almshouses institutions as early as the 10th century. And with what little they had, they did their best to serve their local communities, 
caring for those who were abandoned by society. They were the forerunners of nursing homes and hospitals. Think about it. Without Christianity, there wouldn't have been any of those. That came from the church. Almshouses are still active today. In fact, in Britain, there's 2,600 of them alone. Prison reform. It was the Quakers who pioneered prison reform during the Victorian age. It was the Quakers who suggested basic human rights for prisoners and teaching prisoners a trade. Uh, I was driving along the road the other day this week and I was listening to the radio and I just broke into the program at the time and it was talking about uh, Virgin West train, uh, trains in, in England somewhere. And uh, it was talking about Virgin West is recruiting. They're going to their prisons and they've done this for years, recruiting uh, offenders who's about to be released and offering them a job. And they interviewed some of the, uh, some of the prisoners who were being trained in advance and they were so excited, they said, this is, a, this is a life-changing moment for us. One guy said, I've been in prison many times, but this is the first time I felt that if I leave here, I've got some hope. He says, because when I leave, if I have no job and if I have no home, you start to sleep rough and then you start to steal and then you're back into prison. And he says, it's just an endless cycle. But if I've got a good job and I've got a home and a roof over my head, he says, then there's hope for me. And they interviewed so many, and then they interviewed people who had been released, who had got the job, and said how it totally changed their whole lives. And so I was listening to all of this. And then the interviewer said, and the people who started this initiative, and they were Christians. They were believers. And one of them came on and says, God gave me a heart to do this. And he says, it wasn't easy. Nobody wanted to listen at the start. But he says, we kept at it, and we kept at it. And he says, now companies are doing it. And he says, it's changing lives. So many are not reoffending; They're not going back again. They're going to a new life and a new start. Prison reform, Elizabeth Fry, the age of 18. She was deeply moved by the preaching of a Quaker. And motivated by his words, she took an interest in the poor and the needy and the sick and the prisoners. And she collected clothes for the poor and visited those who were sick in her neighborhood and went to the prisons. She started a Sunday school in the summer house to teach children to read. Elizabeth Fry was a major driving force behind the new legislation to make treatment for prisoners more humane. She was supported in her efforts by the reigning monarch. And since 2001, for a few years, she was depicted on the back of a British five-pound note. Elizabeth Fry was a believer. And so Christians has impacted the world. They have been salt and light in so many places, in so many ways. The Braille system for the visually impaired and the blind uh, by Louis Braille, Braille, Braille uh, as he lay on his best deathbed, he says, God was pleased to open my eyes to hold before my eyes the dazzling splendors of eternal hope. And his system is now used all over the world. Leprosy missions came out of Christians. 
God's using believers. Dr. Paul Wilson Brand was a pioneer in developing tendon transfer techniques for the use of the hands of those with leprosy. He spent 19 years in India. And during his career, Dr. Brand received many awards and honors. He was awarded the Hunterian Professorship of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1952 and many more awards. Leprosy Mission International has over 130 years' experience working with people that are considered untouchable in some societies. Founded by Wellesley Bailey in the 1860s. Again, something that flowed from the church, from Christianity. Public libraries, would you believe, in Western society? Christians have been responsible for developing libraries in the Western society from the earliest times, and it's had a great impact on learning and cultural development. Robert Rakes, the younger, in the 1700s, was an English Anglican layman philanthropist, and he noted for his promotion of Sunday schools. He was the one who started Sunday schools as we know them. This predated schools in the 1831 schooling system. 18, in 1831, there was one and a quarter million children at Sunday school. Started with one man, a believer. And this started in the slums of England, in the big cities. Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The church, Christians. William Wilberforce was one of them who began that. It's the oldest, largest animal welfare organization in the world. One of the largest charities in the UK today. The Red Cross, Salvation Army, YMCA, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, even Alcoholics Anonymous, Oxfam, Michael Faraday, one of the greatest scientists the world has ever known. Sir Isaac Newton, beyond doubt the greatest British scientist the world has ever known. All of these with their great inventions and, and discoveries, all of them believers. Habitat for Humanity, building homes all over the world, began with a believer. Salt and Light, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Think of the great missionary organizations that envelop the world today. <laughs> OMF International, Overseas Mission Fellowship International, founded under Hudson Taylor 150 years ago, has 1,400 missionaries in 40 different countries. Think of the many has been won to Christ through that organization, not just one missionary society in 150 years. Operation Mobilization, George Verver, 3,000 missionaries in 110 different countries, and it's still going strong today. Short-term missions all over the world, 110 different nations. All of this and more, you could speak for another hour. That's just a few, 20 ought to mention. There's hundreds of them. All of that, salt and light, because of the church of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad, aren't you proud to belong to such an organization? No wonder the devil wants to stop it and kill it and defeat it 
but he can't. I will build my church and the gates of hell itself shall not prevail against it. It cannot be beaten. It's his church. You and I are a part of that living body of Christ on earth today. So be proud that you're a Christian. I know that today Christians are being lampooned and we're being laughed at and being ridiculed and persecuted. Listen, this world would be a dire place without it. It's bad enough. But imagine if there was no church. Can you imagine if there's no restraint? Can you imagine if there's no salt and light? <laughs> Can you imagine if there's nothing stopping the corruption and the darkness? What a world this would be. But thank God for his church. Yeah, Glory to God. And we're part of it today. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we stop a moment and we give you thanks that we belong to such a wonderful thing as your church today. Amen. We thank you, Lord, the difference it's making in this cruel, dark, wicked world. And we know, Lord, the enemy of our souls is against us. We know, Lord, that, uh, Lord, that uh, this world is against us, but yet, Lord, you have raised us up for such a time as this. And Lord, in the midst of the darkness will be light, in the midst of the corruption will be salt. Lord, in the midst, Lord, of the darkness of this world, Lord, you will shine through us and touch lives. Thank you, Lord, that your church today is growing stronger, not weaker. We thank you that it's growing, that it's multiplying, it's getting bigger and greater, Lord, as your day approaches. And so we bless you for that, and we give you thanks, Lord, for your great church of which we are privileged to belong in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk